Just before we start, I'd like to ask a small favour. If you enjoy the Tampa 9 podcast, please consider giving it a rating wherever you get your podcasts. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, wherever. Or maybe even a kindly review. It won't take long, and I promise I will love you forever. Many thanks. Hello and welcome to 10 by 9, where nine people have up to 10 minutes each to tell a true story from their own life. I'm Paul Dorn, and this is the 10 by 9 podcast. It's been a busy storytelling few months, and autumn is shaping up to be just as hectic, which is great, but as the evenings draw in, I've gone back to some of our summer events for this podcast. And to take every chance you had to preach the gospel to people like me, the long-haired heathen. We dragged the freezer out into the backyard, dripping blood all the way there, and tipped the contents onto the grass like some grotesque scene from Pulp Fiction. They shaved my legs, my arms, my chest, they sprayed stuff on my hair, applied my face with makeup. I was two years in that chair. So expect a friendship that thrived despite a failed conversion, a bloodbath in the garage freezer, and a story in rhyme of holiday hijinks. But first, a big shout out to Patty McGrath, who got in touch to say our YouTube stories had helped her get through a recent dose of COVID. Patty from Virginia in the US also made a donation through Patreon. So thank you very much, Patty. And you too can, if you like, donate to help cover some of our costs. The link is on our website, 10by9.com. Glad to hear you're on the mend, Patty. Okay, let's get stuck in. And our first story comes from a 10 by 9 regular and no stranger to this podcast, Paul Hutchinson. He told this in June when the theme was Journey. You can copy my work if I can talk to you about Jesus. That's what you said to me, age 14, as we sat together in technical drawing class in Region House Grammar School, Newton Arts. You were a preacher's son who could draw. I was a blunt pencil mess. I was desperate for help with my schoolwork, so I nodded to your deal and began to poorly copy your precision work. And when I was finished copying your neat lines and arrows, you began to quietly talk to me about Jesus. I have no memory of your words, but it was not a heavy endurance to move my head as if listening, as you gently, firmly insisted that Jesus was the answer to a question I did not think I was asking. What I do remember is the tone of your voice. You sounded proper. Your mother taught elocution lessons and you had been schooled from an early age how to enunciate. (laughs) And to take every chance you had to preach the gospel to people like me, the long-haired heathen, At school, I think Robert saw me as potential, as a potential soul to be saved, 
I was a high-profile fallen boy, and my conversion would have been quite the thing, quite the salvation scalp in Christian circles. And who could have predicted that I, as a world-weary nine teenager, would fall for a girl who said she loved Jesus, and that I in turn would be wooed by this Jesus, who in this incarnation appeared to be neither Protestant, Catholic, or sectarian. And Robert was there to pick me up, to teach me Christianese. Myself and the girl fell out. But Jesus and I are still talking, often in the language of silence. Robert, in turn, turned from being an earnest, energetic, evangelical Christian into an earnest, evangelical atheist. <laughs> we often talked about the God he did not believe in. And we both agreed that the idea of God as a white man with a beard in the sky was puerile horseshit. <laughs> 45 years later on, from that technical drawing class, I'm booking flights to London, planning a journey to attend your funeral. On the plane over, fragments of your 59-year journey, you had been my best man, gotten yourself married, celebrated the birth of two daughters, departed from your wife, found a new partner who you went on to marry, suffered cancer twice, had your body battered by the cure for cancer, built the biggest wind farm in Africa, bought and hardly drove a vintage car complete with vintage tape deck developed the delicate art of serving up food made with love and care. I had been with yourself and Trish only a few months ago. We'd spoken of bodies in decline, plans for retirement and travel, the joy and judder of parenting adult children, living with our limits and wanting more. And you had cooked and served and poured yourself into hosting our evening together. And I had left my time with you both feeling tender and glad, marinated in our friendship. The funeral service is in the Belvedere Suite at Pembroke Lodge, which is located in Richmond Park. The sun is shining an awkward ease into the discomfort of a funeral. And the patio doors are open to a view of trees, parkland, deer, squirrels, birds I can hear but not name. Nature is warming our close to crying faces. And the doors of Pembroke Lodge are open to the world, the conversation of old friends catching up, and to the clattering of dishes as comfort food is served, and to small children alive to the moment unaware of the order of service, giggling and squiggling with all that they have. And the doors of Pembroke Lodge are open to Robert's flushed and pregnant daughters. Robert, you will never hold your children's children the way you held your stepkids' kids.
and the doors of Pembroke Lodge are open to one of Robert's friends saying, how hard it was to keep a stiff upper lip. And me saying, I don't think lips need to be stiff right now. But perhaps they could wobble with feeling or pucker up and kiss those we love who are nearby. And when I looked around, he was crying, his lip far from stiff. Look what you did to me, he said. And the doors of Pembroke Lodge are open to several hundred people wondering or resisting wondering how long they would live for and for what. As I mingle with the funeral guests, I remember best falls. Again, Robert liked to play in his late teens and twenties. I went something like this. He would find a high wall or a big grassy knoll and then in front of as many spectators as possible, you would launch yourself from that great height and fall to the ground. Best falls. People took turns to lots of laughter and the occasional groan and sometimes an injury. But I am stuck on the rules. Did you get points for most traumatic fall? Or was it the sound you made imitating being shot? Or was it the lack of injury? Or the biggest bruise? Robert led the way. It seemed like he was always looking for a high place to climb and jump off. With an audience waiting to see his dramatic descent and melodramatic rising up, whatever the fall. And I loved to clap and whoop his climb and fall and rising. But now, old friend, you've fallen for the last time, gone to ground with a fatal bump. Your body has taken too much. Enough. Time to rest. And let the stories we tell of you rise up and out into Richmond Park and beyond as you continue your journey in our trembling hearts, cautioning us to consider how we might measure our days, urging us to taste every morsel of our allocated meal. And finally, for now, a last story. That time back in time when you had filled a bucket with cold water and your dad was relaxing in a warm bath and you opened the bathroom door and you brandished your bucket of cold and your dad said, don't you dare. And you dared. <laughs> and you dared and you dared. And you do it. He did indeed, Paul. Thank you so much. I'll post the photo that goes with that story on social media. What a wonderful friendship. And if, like Paul, you have a story to tell, then get in touch at the 10 by 9 website. Okay, let's get on to our second story. And it was July, the wettest on record. And the theme was, coincidentally, maybe ironically, it never rains. And you might want to hold your nose when you hear what Gloria O'Connor has to say. My Aunt Josie, God rest her, used to have an old ashtray that had a photograph of a little man with an umbrella and a caption that read, 
It never rains, but it pours, and usually on your holidays. In late June 2018, that's exactly what happened for us. When Northern Ireland was sweltering in a heat wave with record temperatures of up to 30 degrees, we had booked to go to Portugal. Now, anyone who knows me will tell you that I am not the most organised person in the world, except at two times of the year, the annual family holiday and Christmas. And then we're talking a military level of coordination. When the children were young, I went into complete overdrive at these times and became super organised. Here comes holiday mom, the children would say, rolling their eyes and generally trying to stay out of my way. Cases were lined up and packed a week in advance. Passports, boarding passes, travel insurance, and any other documents that, were, that we required were arranged in colour-coded files with checklists and arranged in the order in which they would be needed. And of course, we all had to wear our oldest clothes for that week, as all the good stuff was packed away <laughs> and out of bounds. By 2018, I had relaxed a little, as the children were now young adults. But the day we were setting off, I still went round the house checking and double-checking everything, switching off appliances and making sure the plugs were pulled out. And off we went, driving through beautiful sunny weather to arrive in Portugal, where we were met with pouring rain and pretty mediocre temperatures. It rained for most of the time that we were there. We sat in the apartment looking out at it. We sat in restaurants looking out at it. And we sat in the bar a lot, <laughs> looking out at torrential rain while we received loads of messages from friends at home enjoying the prolonged heat wave with the highest temperatures for 40 years. <laughs> we certainly didn't need much sunscreen on that holiday. We ate and drank a lot that week because let's face it, there wasn't much else to do. Fortunately, the sun was still shining when we arrived home, but it was then that I discovered that all my organisation would become my undoing. Still in super efficient mode, I emptied the suitcases, got the washing machine on, and then went out to the garage to get food from the freezer to start dinner, looking forward to a simple home-cooked meal. <laughs> At this stage, I was met by an absolutely horrendous smell, like nothing you have ever experienced. Something must have crawled in here and died while we were away, I thought, but no. I quickly tracked the smell down to the freezer. In my frenzy of switching off plugs, I discovered that I had switched off all the plugs in the garage. A freezer full of meat had completely defrosted in the hottest week of the year. In fact, <laughs> the hottest week for many years. It was absolutely rancid. There was no hope of actually emptying it where it stood. So trying not to breathe, we dragged the freezer out into the back garden dripping blood all the way there and tipped the contents onto the grass like some grotesque scene from Pulp Fiction. <laughs> the smell was truly unbelievable and our dilemma now was how to get rid of it all. We'll have to take it to the dump, my husband said. And I looked at him in disbelief. Really? Do you have a gas mask, I screeched? Or do you think you could drive for five miles while holding your breath? And anyway, even if we could manage to get there, I thought, the staff at the dump will chase us as soon as they get a whiff of that lot. We had to do something, though. There was no doubt we would soon have a garden full of rats and some very disgusted neighbours. I know, 
I declared. We'll have to burn it. <laughs> packaging and all, because there's no way you could take it all out of the packaging without boking all over the place. Now, we're actually not a family who barbecue. <laughs> and we don't own a barbecue. So we had to make do with whatever we could find. <laughs> we had a few house bricks lying around and built a makeshift funeral pyre on the patio. <laughs> the garden was so dry at this stage from the prolonged dry weather that we were worried about starting our very own grass fair. Gloved up and again trying our best not to breathe, we threw three chickens, a roast beef, numerous packs of burgers and chicken breasts, to name but a few, onto the pile. Most heartbreaking of all was the loss of six prime sirloin steaks <laughs> that I had bought in special offer the week before we left. <laughs> My organisational skills had also extended to grocery shopping in the weeks before the holiday, and I watched in horror as the bargains and the buy one get one free offers I had hoarded were loaded up. With a bit of petrol from the jerry can for the lawnmower, we soon had quite a blaze going. In fact, thanks to the petrol, we had some 10 foot high flames. There was flames going sideways, flames going up the ways, flames going in every direction, which in the light evening breeze were veering dangerously close to the house and threatening to set fire to next door's hedge. Mind you, that monstrosity of an overgrown Leylandy hedge would be no great loss to anyone. <laughs> I tried to pull the base of the fire apart to quell the flames and hoping that the neighbours weren't already calling the fire brigade. At this point, I saw one of our neighbours from the garden behind looking over the fence. I have a couple of pallets going spare here if you need them, I left. But you're a week early for the 12th. And with all the plastic wrappings burning and creating a pall of black smoke, it certainly looked we, like we might have a few tires on there already. <laughs> the smell of burning meat was now wafting all across the neighbourhood, and I was mortified. <laughs> it didn't smell like a barbecue either, <laughs> although it wasn't as bad as the rancid stench of earlier, and we just about managed to keep the fire under control. Sadly, the freezer was a goner too as all the blood and meat juices had seeped into the lining. Of course, as luck would have it, it was a new freezer that had only been bought a month earlier. We'd had the previous one for 15 years, given to us by my sister, who'd had it for another 10 years before that. As the fire eventually subsided, we were still reluctant to leave it unattended. And even though we had sworn that we had had enough of eating and drinking on holiday, we pulled up a garden chair and watched the dying embers with a Chinese takeaway and a glass of wine. <laughs> I've never been allowed to live down that incident when my organisational skills costed a new freezer and a substantial amount of meat. We still have a blackened ring in the patio as a constant reminder <laughs> from when we shoveled up the cremated remains and put them into bin bags the next day. <laughs> Ah, glorious Gloria. What a treat for the senses. Thank you so much. Come back soon with more, please. And I don't need to repeat the bit about 10 by 9 always being free and rattle the collection tin as I did it earlier, so let's just move on to our third story on this podcast. And it's something a little different. Actually, it's a lot different. It was August in Bangor, and the theme was Proud. 
Fasten your seatbelt for Barney Griven. This event happened 40 years ago, and uh, instead of telling a story, I have written a poem. We holidayed up at the port. We went there every year, diving off the cliff edge. As kids, we had no fear. We spent our days in rock pools, in the sea and on the beach. At night, we went to Barry's and got crisps and a mineral leech. As we got a little older, the port was still good fun, but we had set our horizons on a holiday in the sun. Frank and I were working now and saving a few bob. A holiday in sunny Spain would surely do the job. We headed off into town, our spirits they were high. Ten minutes in the travel agents, we'd booked two weeks in July. Two weeks in Ibiza, God, I really couldn't wait. The sun oil bought in gallons to protect us from the heat. The night before the holiday, we went out on the rip. An awful stupid thing to do the night before a trip. <laughs> Behave yourselves now, boys, was my father's final word as we headed to the airport to get on a metal bird. My tummy started to rumble as we approached the departure gate. It couldn't be the feet of Guinness. It must be something that I ate. <laughs> as we were streaking across the sky in the middle of the night, I spent the whole time in the toilet trying hard not to... Well, I wasn't feeling right. <laughs> when we touched down in that foreign land and they opened the airplane door, the heat coming off the runway would have knocked you to the floor. Easing down the airplane steps, I couldn't move any slower. I had to take it easy, because my arse was raw and sore. <laughs> we got onto a fancy bus and headed for our hotel. Frank was looking out the window. He wasn't looking well. I said to him, are you okay? You look like you had a fright. He said, that stupid whore at the head of the bus was driving on the right. <laughs> we reached the hotel at 9am. We hadn't slept a wink. We headed straight for a bar stool to get ourselves a drink. Some people think we're idiots. Some would say we're a fool. But by 10 by 9 in the morning, we had the best seats at the pool. The last time we were in the water was the seaside at the port. A swimming pool in sunny Spain was a different kind of sport. There were men in speedos swimming trunks with everything on show. I turned my eyes the other way. I didn't need to know. <laughs> girls in wee bikinis, oh, it was a pleasant sight. We never see that in Ireland. Girls at home are too polite. We met a group of local girls, eight nurses from Belfast. The thought of us behaving ourselves was never going to last. They spent their time with me and Frank, they thought we were powerful crack. And all the time our intention was to get one in the sack. <laughs> These eight nurses with me and Frank, we stood out from the crowd. If my father could only see me now, boys, he'd be awful proud. <laughs> they laid a challenge down to us if this would be all right. They would pay for all our food and drink if they could dress us up some night. So we agreed to play along, sure it might be a bit of fun. As long as photos don't end up at home or the pair of us are done. They shaved my legs, my arms, my chest. They sprayed stuff on my hair. Applied my face with makeup. I was two years in that chair. A bright red dress was picked for me because that would match my skin. Stuffed a bra with underpants. We were ready to begin. Every bar we went to, the drinks we got were free. Some people that were in those bars thought I really was a she. We ended up on a fun park at the tail end of the night. A lad from Leeds in England was in for an awful fright. <laughs> he was chatting to one of the nurses and he told her he fancied me. 
he did not believe her when she said I was a he. <laughs> she introduced me to him and asked me to prove him wrong. I lifted up my skirt to expose me in a thong. <laughs> All his friends were laughing, he felt an awful fool. I was standing in my thong, showing him my, well, that I wasn't a woman. <laughs> we finished off that crazy night with a drink at our hotel. When the barman saw the dress of us, he said, bloody hell. You Irish men are crazy. You do anything for a laugh. Wait till I get my camera, because I want a photograph. The night we had was powerful fun. The nurses were delighted. When the photos are developed, it'll be a party, and you're invited. Names and numbers were exchanged with a promise to keep in touch. We would love to meet again. We enjoyed their time so much. I was proud of how I conducted myself as a lady out in Spain. If the offer ever raised its head, I might even do it again. <laughs> I got a call one Thursday night, the party it was on. The address was Oakland Avenue. We would love you to come along. These nurses were from East Belfast. They were Protestant, through and through. We were Catholics from Tunbridge. What the hell are we going to do? <laughs> Two weeks in Spain without any rain, we had fun with them every day. These eight nurses were just like us when you take religion away. So we headed off to the party, two Catholics from Tunbridge. By the time we got to Belfast, we were two Protestants from Tubbermore. <laughs> Hugs and kisses all around and photographs were shared of the night they dressed us up as girls and not a sinner cared. Frank got married the following year, that changed our way of life. I was still a single man, but he now had a wife. We never holidayed together again, that was the last one that we had. We lost contact with the nurses. It was really kind of sad. But those two weeks we had in Spain was all fun and play, and I will never forget it until my dying day. Thank you very much. Oh, Barney, they broke the mould with you. Thanks so much. And just to be clear, 10 by 9 isn't a poetry event, but if you want to tell a story in rhyme, then we're up for it. Recently, a contributor told her story through Indian dance, and it was amazing. By the way, if you're in Belfast at the weekend, you might see Barney with a group of tourists as he's a tour guide in the city centre. Keep an eye out. And that is it for this podcast. Check out all the 10 by 9 upcoming dates on our website, which includes some special events over the coming months. And keep in touch with us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Maybe think about giving the podcast a review or rating at a podcast app. It's very helpful if you can. And tell as many people as you can about 10 by 9 and the 10 by 9 podcast. Thanks to everyone who makes 10 by 9 happen. Margaret McClory, Leanne McConville and Chris O'Donoghue. The wonderful people of the Black Box, our home venue since 2011, our gorgeous, warm and generous audiences. All our amazing storytellers, of course, but especially Paul Hutchinson, Gloria O'Connor and Barney Gribben. I'm Paul Dorn and I'll be back with another podcast soon. But for now, bye bye. <laughs>